Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Okay, today on the show, I welcome Brother Satyananda. Satyananda has served as a monk in the monastic order of Paramahansa Yogananda's Self-Realization Fellowship for over 40 years. He resides at the Hermitage at Lake Shrine, Self-Realization Fellowship's lush 10-acre spiritual retreat and meditation center in Los Angeles, where he serves as minister in charge. He has inspired audiences throughout the world with his dynamic presentations on the ancient philosophy of yoga and the time-honored science of meditation. In our conversation, Satyananda and I discuss the genesis and the mission of Self-Realization Fellowship. We unpack a number of its unique aims and ideals as prescribed by Yogananda, the legendary founder of Self-Realization Fellowship. We explore the remarkable life of Yogananda, his legendary autobiography, and the story of how he brought yoga to the West. Satyananda describes Kriya Yoga, the specific method espoused and taught by Yogananda, and we discuss the monastic life and the modern role of Self-Realization Fellowship. Now, before jumping into the interview, I wanted to let you know that if you're interested in guided meditation programs with wonderful teachers like Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, and Michael Beckwith, well, then you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library, including more than 100 courses on health, mindfulness, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. This was a wonderful, rich conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. So without further delay, I present to you, Brother Satyananda. Okay, 
Brother Satyananda, wonderful to be with you today. Thank you, Jeff. So I'd love to spend our time together today introducing our listeners to the Self-Realization Fellowship. To begin with, kind of at the very, very highest level, um, what is the Self-Realization Fellowship and how would you describe its mission? Well, Self-Realization Fellowship was founded by Paramahansa Yogananda. And since his time in the 1920s through 19, early 1950s, it has grown into an international religious organization. And it's a mission with a practical uh, purpose, and that is not only to share teachings that we can gain knowledge from, but also to um, apply in daily life. So there's a strong application element to um, the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. And part of the mission of Self-Realization Fellowship is to bring that application of uh, spiritual practice into daily life. So we do a lot of not only mm, conveying and communicating um, the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda, but also follow up support and assistance in helping them to actually align their lifestyle with the truth that they are learning. And this for me is a very exciting part of the work that I do, is not only in helping to impart the teachings in a learning or educational way, but then taking it that further step and saying, okay, now how are we gonna do this? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, being, able to instantiate or help people to instantiate a daily spiritual practice uh, seems more needed than ever. You know, it's impossible to really discuss the Self-Realization Fellowship without delving in to the biography of Yogananda, um, who is widely considered the father of, of yoga in the West. Now, we have a very different conception of what yoga is in modern day than, than I think um, Yogananda's vision of, of yoga was. But perhaps you could provide just a brief overview of his upbringing, his uh, discipleship, and, and his arrival in the West and establishment of Self-Realization Fellowship. Well, we're talking about this book, <laughs> the yes. Autobiography of a Yogi, and it has remained a best um, seller in the spiritual book category. It's now in about 50 languages. Um, Paramahansa Yogananda's autobiography is unique in that it, through his own life story, his own life narrative, he touches on many universal aspects of our life. So our inner needs, our lack of um, perhaps complete satisfaction with uh, a material life as we know it, our desire for deeper understanding and a higher sense of self. And so Yogananda goes through this personal saga of discovering um, for himself um, the truth and the ex not only the truth but the experience of it, and then discovering his guru, Swami Sri Yukteswar, which is in our lineage, 
And then his training in the ashram with his guru, he shares his life there. A lot of miracles are mentioned. And it's very interesting because um, he crossed uh, paths with a number of mystical souls who were highly developed in esoteric practices. And so we get a little insight into the, you know, the deeper spirituality, we might say, that comes from India. And then Yogananda himself uh, receiving a uh, touch of enlightenment from his guru. And he even wrote a beautiful poem called Samadhi. Uh, banished the veils of light and shade, lifted every vapor of sorrow, sailed away all dawns of fleeting joy. He gets very poetic uh, and expressive about his experience of, of God as expanded cosmic consciousness. And then he documents for the reader um, his transition from, you know, a youthful life in India to joining an ancient monastic order of sannyas, which I am also a member, and, and then coming to the United States where he actually spent the large portion of his adult life. So even though he was, he was Indian by birth, he really adopted, you might say, um, America and the American people as his country and his continent. Um, and then a little bit about the founding of Self-Realization Fellowship, which is the cornerstone of his mission. And a lot of interesting stories along the way. So I think the high-level overview here is, is that uh, Yogananda's narrative is kind of speaking to the reader about the universal search for expressing and discovering our highest potential. And it's interesting how this kind of touches people's hearts in different ways because it becomes very, a very personal journey. And they, it's a journey that they're often surprised that they can relate to. Uh, yes, yeah, that's what I find is so unique about this piece of art. And I'm talking about the, the book, Autobiography of a Yogi. It is so rich with detailed story and metaphor and marvelous allegory and just the mastery of vocabulary that is leveraged throughout the book and so it's just a marvelous book and of course it um it it reemerges into prominence uh with crests and troughs but you know steve jobs i think famously had 500 of these at his memorial mm -hmm. um, but he's he's not the only uh one this has become um kind of a, a a celebrated work for like george harrison and the beatles mm -hmm. etc mm -hmm. so but just from a um a context um chronologically time-wise when was he born and when did he start to bring his message to the West? He was born in 1893 at the very end of, um, you know, the century. And his youth was in the early 1900s. And then he was with his guru um, during, you know, between 1910, 1920. 
and then he came to the United States in 1920, and he started his um, personal mission in 1920 in Boston. And he was there for a few years, and then he felt that he needed to kind of go on the road. So he did, and he ended up in Los Angeles. And when he got to Los Angeles, he said, um, this is the place where I feel like I need to um, put down roots. And so he uh, found a property uh, on Mount Washington, just overlooking Chavez Ravine, the Dodger Stadium, mm-hmm. and um, made that called that his spiritual home. And it's been our headquarters ever since for Self-Realization Fellowship. He continued to travel throughout his life. So he did lecture tours and conducted initiations into discipleship for students. And he traveled in Europe and went back to India. So he was an executive of a international organization. And (laughs) at the same time, he was a traveling uh, teacher. So he actually uh, you know, when I he passed in 1952, and he was 59 years old. Uh, I'm now 72, and when I became 59, I realized, oh, I'm the same age as my guru. What have I accomplished? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, well, one thing that we've learned from Yogananda is that we shouldn't put too much stock into chronological linear time so uh but um yeah i mean just for those listening to get a sense of the exuberance and the scale with which uh yogananda's message was met i mean i've seen um the movie awake um which has some old um archival footage of yogananda um and photography Uh, and we're and he was speaking and lecturing to crowds of five thousand ten thousand people these weren't just uh classrooms of you know Mm -hmm. 25 30 people um and he was the response to his message was Mm -hmm. so exuberant and he really tapped into something um Mm -hmm. in his time I'm not sure he could have even predicted the um, the response that he got when he when he landed. Well, it was very interesting because you know a central part of his uh, lecture the time he spent lecturing and teaching uh, was during the Great Depression. So it was during the 1930s, and while you know the world and the country of the United States was falling apart financially and and culturally. Yogananda was traveling around giving these robust messages. You can succeed. You can be happy. You can do it. And uh, people were desperate. And so they were just really hungry for this kind of message. The timing um, of his delivery and also of the people's needs is pretty unique in history. Yeah, I had never put it in that context against the backdrop of the depression. But I think that is a, uh, an important substrate, um, really giving people a lot of hope in, mm-hmm. in a time that was otherwise very dismal for, for many people. Well, and it was followed then by World War II. 
And so he had a good 15 years there of his prime. Yeah. And uh, he, he had these international disasters going on. And uh, I love to put his, like you said, I love to put his uh, words and teachings and some of his recorded lectures kind of in that um, framework because mm -hmm. it helps me to appreciate um, his accomplishment even more. Yeah. And then he spent his final years focused mostly on his writing um, and, uh, and felt that he was most useful um, uh, leveraging his penmanship or his, uh, his abilities as an author. Um, and then I believe he died in 1952 in, in a, in a, in relative dramatic fashion, can you very dramatic. Um, perhaps describe that scene a bit? Well, he was invited to uh, give a presentation in downtown Los Angeles at the uh, Biltmore Hotel. And uh, there were a lot of dignitaries there, international diplomats and local dignitaries. Um, and he even predicted to his uh, disciples and a few friends that um, the day of the event was going to be his last day on earth. So he made it clear that he knew exactly when he was going to depart. And then on the evening of the event, uh, his turn came to speak. He was in a line of speakers and uh, he got up and he gave his presentation. And then at the end of the presentation, he recited a poem that he had written dedicated to his mother, India. And at the very last line, after he finished repeat, you know, reciting that that dedicated poem, he um, gave up his life and consciousness from the body. And it was at that very moment, and people were just astounded. I was told by someone who was there that um, it. She said it was one of the most profound moments of her life, because she said the room was filled with this dynamic energy that she had never felt before. So this is um, along the lines of, or in keeping with um, sages of India who have consciously given up their body at the end of life. It's not something that is you know, talked about very much, but there is that power that is gained from practiced spirituality where we can actually overcome involuntary death and it's called a maha samadhi, where someone is able to consciously exit. So that's what we call uh, his passing, a maha samadhi. But he did it in a unique fashion. He did it. On, he did it on the stage. <laughs> yes, yes, as as he did much of his work. Yeah. It is documented by the local. Uh, mortician, I believe that his body didn't decay or, or showed no signs of decay for uh, an unprecedented period uh, of time, and he just remained kind of placid and intact. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just yeah, an un uncommon soul. <laughs> um. So I'd love to talk a little bit about the aims and ideals. Uh, for Self-Realization Fellowship because Yogananda in the establishment of the fellowship 
was very clear in his enumeration of goals for the enterprise. So uh, I'll hover over a couple and and get your response. And then, you know, if you want to call out some of the other ones, uh, by all means. But one that I found particularly interesting um, was this one. I just have to put on my glasses and read it. To reveal the complete harmony and basic oneness of original Christianity taught by Jesus Christ and original yoga as taught by Krishna, and to show that these principles of truth are the common scientific foundation of all true religions. So, it's pretty ambitious. This, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this non-sectarian approach to religion um, is, as you say, incredibly ambitious, and you know, unique for its time, unique for any time, um, and you know, in fact, in many. Um, self-realization fellowship settings, like at Lake Shrine, um, there is a portrait of Jesus, often affixed right next to Lord Krishna uh, on the altar space. So I wonder if you can describe that consilience that can be found between the teachings of Jesus and those of the self-realization fellowship. Well, what Paramahansa Yogananda was tapping into is um, a core or a source, unity of truth that um, is complementary no matter the time or the uh, location throughout history. So we have actually prophets of many different religions, and at the origin of that religion, there is an inspiration, a person who had a mystical insight, had an, lived a life of inspiration. And at that source of inspiration, there is common ground. Hmm. And Paramahansaji wanted to tap into that. And so he said that in studying the teachings of Jesus, which he did while he was in India before he came to America, um, the words of Jesus very much aligned in spirit and in inspiration with the words of Krishna from the Bhagavad Gita. And so there arose a desire in his heart to show this um, alignment at the source of inspiration. So the religions, you know, gradually evolved from the uh, founding prophet, and they developed different rituals and different practices. And they have different uh, faith language. Um, which tends to be perceived as being separate. But when you trace it back to the source, um, it gets more and more common until you actually, and I know that you, Jeff, have seen books that actually compare, you know, words of Jesus, words of Buddha, words of, and you can kind of categorize them into different topics. Mm -hmm. And there are even stories uh, from the different prophets. I was telling something in a Sunday service at Lake Shrine about um, Jesus watching a poor woman putting in, you know, two copper coins when all the wealthy Jews had put in their donations in the Temple of David. And he said to his disciples, you know, she has given more because she has given all she had. And then I told a story from the life of Buddha, uh, where, according to the tradition, 
uh, Buddha was given lots of wealthy gifts from merchants. And then a woman came up and gave a, a mango. And he made a big deal out of it. And he said, all of you have given from your abundance, but she has given all she had. And so we see these common threads, these common teachings, and more important, the profound common inspiration. And so Yogananda's aim and ideal there is, is to bring this out and say, we're not talking about two separate teachings, two separate concepts. We're talking about one inspiration, one revelation. And he even wrote, uh, composed um, spiritual commentary for those two scriptures, the Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavan Krishna, taking the words of the verse and then also making it a very mystical commentary. And then the words of the uh, from the New Testament and and taking those verses and breaking them down and giving a mystical insight on those. And it's very amazing because I read both scriptures go back and forth and I gain actually, you know, the same inspiration. I love them both. Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I think you make a good point that behind the window dressing of the dogma and the ritual, um, that there is a common experience of samadhi, if you will, or of integrated consciousness, or a sensation that there is no delineation between the experience of what it's like to be me and the world or and source. Um, and that that experience is available to anyone in any culture. And it is very likely and very possible that Jesus had this moment of Satori, this, uh, this Samadhi, uh, if you will. But the context for having it was within the parentheses of the Hebrew God. So, so then, okay, well, th this was his context for that experience. And so it became sort of classified uh, within these brackets of, of, of Abrahamic tradition. Well, Yogananda but, even yeah. gets into that, Jeff, because he says that it's kind of all in language and the language that you're <laughs> yeah. using and the references that you're using to be able to speak to the people. And so in his commentaries on the words of Jesus, Yogananda is often saying, well, Jesus is saying this, but from the higher level of inspiration from which he is speaking, um, his meaning is the same in this way. And so he's using the language of the time and the climb and the references of the people. He's using the parables that they will understand. And he's drawing from the language of the religion of the area. But the intent and purpose and the meaning that he has is the same as mm. Bhagavan Krishna or something. So we have this mystical uh, foundation. So here's another one of the aims and ideals that I'd love to get your perspective on, given that you are um, part of the monastic order. Uh, so one of the aims and ideals was to encourage plain living and high thinking. So I wonder <laughs> how you interpret that and, uh, and what kind of resonance that might have as applied to your own life. <laughs> 
Well, one of our vows that we take as uh, as a monastic is the vow of simplicity. Um, it relates a little bit to the Christian vow of, of poverty, but Yogananda said, no, I don't believe in poverty. I believe in simplicity. And um, I think we can all relate. In fact, this ties in with the, well, we might call it the COVID experience that we've all been through together. A lot of the uh, conversation that I've been having with spiritually inclined men and women is, I didn't realize how complex my life had become. And um, a desire coming out of the experience the past two years to kind of simplify, that is to structure or restructure our life according to our real values. And I think this is where there becomes a separation that we're not even aware of, it sneaks up on us. And we get distracted by this and distracted by that, and we're interested in this or that. And before we know it, we're um, our life has become filled with all kinds of inconsequential things, and our values have been buried. And so this past couple of years, people have taken a fresh look and asked themselves questions that are actually quite hard questions, saying, how can I rebuild my life going forward that's more based on the the values that I hold dear. So we all think of ourselves as high-minded people, um, but our lifestyle becomes compromised. And it's not by intention, it's just by the force of environment itself. Um, but we have to be very focused. And so this aim and ideal is saying, you know, be focused about it. Put your intention into it and build a meaningful life based on your highest values and remain on track with that. And when we do, we find this harmony coming from within that just feels really rich and strong because complexity, diversity is good to a certain point because we have a lot of abilities and interests. The world is offering a broad menu that we can tap into, but we get overloaded too much information, too many opinions, too many points of view. And I'm always asking people, especially the, uh, the younger generation now, um, you know, what, what do you believe? You, you know, you can tell me what others believe and you're always checking in with your peers and you, you kind of get a group sense of what direction everybody's going, but what do you believe? What, mm-hmm. what conclusions can you draw? because that's where the rubber really hits the road. So I think that, you know, plain living and high thinking is uh, bringing the uh, lifestyle and the personal daily actions up to the level of the ideals and the values, and then making it operational in your daily life. I think Lao Tzu wrote uh, something like, a scholar learns something every day. The man of Tao unlearns something. (laughs) Um, And I've tried to uh, um, apply that logic just to my closet, (laughs) just to simplify. and uh and to really let go of this notion that there's going to be some kind of external agent 
that's going to be able to address my own inner feelings of deficiency or, or inadequacy. And, and so often we look outside ourselves to address these kinds of discontents. Um, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I've often referred to this period of COVID as an imposed monasticism for some, of course, not yeah. to the order that your uh, monastic pursuits have gone, but but it is a reprioritization and in, in some ways a, sim- um, a simplification of life. And certainly I think there was a time there I can look into my own life where, you know, I had dinner with my children every single night. I cooked, my wife and I cooked every single meal, a lot from food that we just got from our own garden. You know, it was, um, I didn't get into a car for five or six weeks. Now, you know, of course, everybody's situation was very, very different. And, you know, during this time, there were people, uh, I think about doctors and nurses and first responders and people in ICU units and obviously people that had fallen sick. And the reality for many people was, was very different. I think there was also an explosion of loneliness and isolation and alienation during this time. But I do agree with you that um, it was the experience of many to simplify their lives. And through that simplification, um, begin to focus on what made life worthwhile in the first place. Um, so, um, so here's another ideal that I'd like to explore with you. Another thing that I found incredibly unique um, about Yogananda and also about just the work of Self-Realization Fellowship. So I'll read it here. Um, to unite science and religion through realization of the unity of their underlying principles. So to unite science and religion. This is also fascinating um, because typically faith has been the providence of religion and fact belongs to the realm of science. And, uh, and there is a, a large wall built between them. But, you know, obviously yoga, Yogananda had to be incredibly interested in science because his lifetime, just the chronological lifetime saw some of the most significant upheavals in science. Uh, you know, I, I think about the upending of uh, Newtonian physics and the introduction of relativity theory and shortly thereafter quantum theory and quantum physics, particle theory, etc. And Yogananda really tried to sort of bridge the cosmic and the empirical by teaching what he called scientific techniques for attaining direct personal experience of God, scientific techniques. So I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit and describe some of these shared underlying principles between science and religion as you understand them. Well, um, you know, on the grand scale, um, the teachings that Yogananda brings are a a modernized version of ancient Vedas. The Vedas in India are, are a vast scripture uh, that goes back now about 10,000 years. And part of that body of scripture has to do with the 
uh, inner and outer universe and how it's structured and all of its layers. And when you get into that, um, it looks a lot like modern quantum. So you have your, you know, you have your biological cellular level, you have your atomic level, you have your sub subatomic particle level, um, and then um, the scriptures take over and say beneath the subatomic quant quantum level of particles, there is energy, and then there is vibration. And more subtle than vibration is consciousness. And so there are, according to these ancient teachings and Yogananda's uh, teaching, there are uh, discoveries yet to be made, but the discoveries that have already been made um, are so much in alignment with the historical teaching that it shows going in the, in the same direction. Um, Yogananda also backs this up with his experiences in Samadhi, where he talks about um, vibration. And I've had this in my experience, too, where suddenly you can be aware of thing, everything that is vibrating gently all around you. You can see particles of light that are, you know, bubbling around you, and you realize that space is alive. Mm. Um, now, that's both spiritual and it's scientific, because um, we are able to actually perceive this reality on a more subtle level. And that's where this kind of thing merges, where spirituality and science begins to come together in the fabric of the reality that we share. Um, the, the techniques that we practice are scientific because Yogananda made the analogy of a scientific experiment. He said a Experiment becomes scientific when you can perform different steps and you can arrive at the same result every time. And so different people can perform the same experiment um, and arrive at the same result. And so uh, techniques of meditation that we teach are the same way. So we can use our breath, we can use our mind in terms of mantra, we can use our concentration in a very specific way, and success can be measured by the outcome, and the outcome will be the same. Now, for example, and this will interest you, I'm sure, Jeff, is the teaching that we have about the spiritual eye. So you close your eyes, and when you close your eyes, um, all you see is darkness. And so the teaching that we have, and it comes from India, says if you lift your gaze and your mind and you center it right between the eyebrows, you focus it on a center there that as your eyes become steady and your mind becomes calm, you will begin to see light. And the light that forms there sometimes is usually just a white ball of light. It doesn't have its amorphous. It doesn't have any particular shape. But as you concentrate there with steadiness, it forms a ring a golden ring of light. And as you concentrate more deeply, the center of that ring becomes blue, and then there emerges a pinpoint white five-pointed star. Now, that sounds kind of artistic, but the amazing thing is everybody can see it. So um, we have people that come to us and say, I've got a question. When I close my eyes at night and go to sleep, I see this golden ring with a blue field and a little white star. What is that? Um, you ask a child, um, 
when you go to sleep at night, do you see anything? And sometimes a child will say, yes, I, I see light. Um, talk, describe the light to me. Oh, I see this golden ball of light that has a dark center to it. And so um, the idea here is, is that in the right, with the right preparation and in the right state of mind, um, everybody can perceive that light. It is the same. So the teaching here is touching on a more esoteric level of a reality that we share and that science is still discovering. And ancient science or ancient metaphysical science has to a great degree already uncovered um, for us to rediscover again. And that in a sense is what we're doing. Yogananda very uh, cleverly said, go into the laboratory of your mind. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. And he said there, with the proper techniques, you can begin to discover um, the secrets. He calls them the secrets of the universe. Yes, applying sort of a, the tried and true scientific method to one's own mind of hypothesis, experimentation, observation, reasoning, modification, conclusion. Um, and doing that as practice, um, yes. which I think is, is fascinating. You know, I am making myself a note to um, book another podcast session to focus on one particular chapter of Autobiography of a Yogi, which is chapter 30, which is called The Law of Miracles. Um, it's too dense. I think to unpack on this particular in this particular episode because I want to actually get into some of the modalities and teachings that you bring to the world but I just um for anyone listening who's interested in the relationship between uh science and mysticism I really highly recommend that people go read that chapter because it really unpacks these monumental discoveries of the early 20th century relativity theory and quantum theory and how they point to the inherent dualistic and relativistic nature of the material or the phenomenal world, which is, which is essentially the world that Yogananda would refer to as Maya, the world of, of illusion. And, um, and that for him, for Yogananda, this discovery underwrote um, a philosophy that there is this phenomenal world that is uh, mired in polarity, uh, that is mired in opposites, and um, that outside this world of location and form, uh, you know, the world that we are limited to see by just the the bracket of, of our five senses yeah. um that there is a unified consciousness and the great mystics and sages were able to realize this and tap into an ultimate re reality where essentially they could dematerialize and become energy and, and, and travel through linear time as energy uh, and essentially transcend the polarity of the phenomenal world 
uh, of location and form. It's fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating. And um, adding something to that, uh, more than we imagine, people's lives touch on this. They have inner experiences that they don't talk about. I'm a spiritual counselor with SRF as a minister. And um, people tell me things that they don't even tell their husbands and wives. <laughs> uh, like, you know, they had a dream and in the dream they transcended their body and they uh, witnessed something that went on in another place and later they confirmed it. And so, you know, we talk about, we're not talking about paranormal or all this stuff, but we're actually talking about intuitive perception. And people have intuitive perceptions that go beyond the rational mind. Um, we have our daily life where we're perceiving through the senses, we're processing with our cognitive mind, we're making sense out of it all, we're processing it. And yet there is another form of perception. And this awakens through meditation. So in meditation with scientific techniques, we use the techniques to go beyond the rational mind and beyond thought into a state of stillness, which then awakens uh, a new state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And we realize, oh, I have new tools. I have faculties that I didn't know that I had. And we begin to understand things in a new way. So I think that this is kind of unlocking the potential that we would always want to dream about having, but don't know how to access. And here people are accidentally, you might say, accessing it. They have an insight or an intuition. Um, they can't explain it. They don't know how to get back to it. And artists, musicians, people throughout history have produced phenomenal works of authorship, of art, of um, music. And when you talk to them about their source of inspiration, it's very mystical. And they don't know how they got it. It just came to them as an inspiration. And Yogananda is saying, it's always there. And it's always available. And if you want more access, here's how you can have it. Yeah, I mean, just uh, to ground that in an experience that some of the listeners might have as as yoga practitioners, um, of which many are, of my listeners are regular practicing yogis, you know, there is a place of flow where you have perfect awareness of your body in space and time, where every, um, what normally might present as resistance completely disappears. Um, and your sense of time, your sense of your body from a perspective of location and form uh, seems to disappear. Um, and there is just a complete sense of oneness or flow or connection. And, um, and I suppose, you know, when Yogananda described self-realization and, you know, I want to ask you what self-realization actually means to you, given that that's a important term in our conversation, but he described it as, um, a certain kind of knowing um, in a soul knowing that we are one uh, with the omnipresence of God. And 
And this profound knowing can be reified through practice. Um, and and so, you know, maybe this is a, a good time to talk about what some of those practices are. I mean, you know, Yogananda was anchored in Kriya Yoga. Um, so that's certainly a place where we can start. But uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how we can leverage certain modalities to access that sense of oneness or flow. Well, we are very much um, identified with our bodies and our physical experience. And when we begin to meditate, that sense of identification starts to change. Uh, we have a, we might call it an Atman or a higher self or a soul, um, a higher state of being that we can begin to access. And once we do, even to a very small degree at first, our sense of identity begins to change. And this is actually quite profound because the identification with the body is very limited. It has a moment of birth, it has a moment of death, it has chaos in between. Um, but something that's profoundly more than that in a, in a higher sense um, can become a new sense of identity for us. And the more we meditate, the more we step into that and we realize I am more than what I thought I was. And that begins to take shape for you. It's, it's individual for each person, but it's also universal in its scope. The practices of Kriya Yoga specifically um, are a sequence of techniques because being able to tap into this higher self, self-realization, um, requires the withdrawal of uh, life energy, so it is life energy that we are using to connect with the outer world through our senses. So it's an energetic connection between our senses and the sensory objects. Um, for example, you know, you can feel the, the sensation in your fingertips when you rub your fingers. And that's, um, you know, you can explain that in, in terms of it's the nervous system and so forth, but there's consciousness also there. Um, in Kriya Yoga, we withdraw that sensory awareness from the body back to the spine. Now, this happens naturally in sleep. So we go to sleep and our senses shut down, and yet we are still alive, and we are sleeping and dreaming, and we awake the next morning, and we had certain experiences. We were not aware of what was going on around us, um, but we have rested and we're still alive. So there is that potential to have um, life, awareness, and experience uh, beyond the senses. And that's where meditation starts. It does not go into sleep. It goes beyond sleep because we are entering into a new space consciously and at will. It's not a passive thing. And as we do using Kriya Yoga, Kriya Yoga works with um, life energy, it works with breath, it works with mantra, 
and it worked with, works with the mind and visualization. So we are combining our um, human tools of the mind um, to focus on the process of withdrawing our attention from the body and lifting it up to a higher state of perception. Um, how am I doing? Excellent. So, oh, um, and this is one of the hardest, trickiest components, I think, around the conversation uh, for Kriya Yoga, because it is, you know, Yogananda himself is very vague in some ways about the specific modalities and techniques because they have traditionally been taught exclusively through this kind of guru disciple relationship. Mm -hmm. And so even in the autobiography of, of the yogi, you know, he, there is a chapter about Kriya Yoga. Yeah, he um, says, I can't disclose. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, it, it reminds me of the Tao uh, where Lao Tzu wrote, writes, those who say uh, do not know and those who know do not say. Um, of course, then he went on to write a book about it. But um, but uh, he, he does describe a certain kind of pranayama or, or breathing technique um, that perhaps you can explain to me a little bit without um, violating any codes, um, where he calls it disjoining the course of inspiration and expiration. Now, the, the way that I understood this or have tried to understand it is that there is a certain kind of breathing technique in which your exhale and your inhale merge or yoke as one and that the ability to do this releases prana or life force kind of from the heart um now this is a very uh uh i'm revealing how much of an accolade I, I am here in this regard, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the breathing technique and, and what he might mean by this particular pranayama. Well, the, the common, I think the common definition for pranayama in the West is uh, breath, breath work. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of different forms that that takes. Uh, as I was saying before, Kriya Yoga is more than just breath. So breath is one yeah. component of the technique. Um, the breathing itself is a regulated breathing, and it involves mantra. So you are putting uh, the flow of breath together with the mantra. It's a mental mantra, but mm -hmm. mental mantra generates vibration. And so the combination of the, the regulated breath, and in this sense, the, uh, the Bhagavad Gita verse says the same thing, offering the inhaling breath to the exhaling breath and offering the exhaling breath to the inhaling breath, breath becomes transmuted into mm -hmm. consciousness mm. or breath becomes mind is the common English translation. And so we have this, transmutation process that's taking place as we are performing a gentle regulated breath offering the inhaling and exhaling breath to each other so it's a continuous process that is 
impregnated with mantra and also involves visualization. So you are guiding uh, breath and life force as you are performing. And it is really the combination of all three working together in concert that achieves the optimum effect of withdrawing life force um, from the senses and the nerves back to the spine. And um, Yogananda Ji gives a very interesting spiritual law. He says, consciousness follows life force. So wherever there is life energy, there is your consciousness. And back to the simple, you know, fingertip analogy, when you are putting your fingers together and pinching your fingers, um, there's energy there and you can feel it and you are aware of it. So your consciousness is in your fingers. And, and so the meditation process is withdrawing that consciousness away from the flesh back into the more subtle realms of the, the spine and then lifting it up. So there's a transmutation of life energy and consciousness that is achieved by a sequential application of uh, regulated gentle breath, offering up the breath, impregnated with subtle mantra and um, directed by the mind through visualization. Mm -hmm. Am I answering the question? Yeah, so when you're leading a guided meditation, for example, mm -hmm. are you... Um, combining those three elements in in your guidance in terms of offering a mental mantra a specific kind of drishti let's say uh or gaze point even if that's just in your mind um and a, and a breath pattern well we have different levels of practitioners even within our own mm, spiritual community and everybody is practicing uh, techniques that are taught by Yogananda. He offers so much, it's incredible. But the basic, what we call sadhana, or daily practice, um, will be the same and leading in the same direction. So not everyone is practicing all of the techniques that we offer, but they're certainly practicing some of the sequence. The guidance that I give in group meditations um, usually is uh, based around the fundamentals of proper posture, guiding us into a state of relaxed stillness of the body because that needs to be achieved first. You can't take your stress into meditation and get results. Um, and then calming the mind. So there can be some instruction on quieting the mind. Um, and then those who practice Kriya Yoga, like you've observed, it's a, um, it's a technique that's given in initiation of discipleship, according to the you know ancient adjuncts of yoga science. And the real reason behind that is very similar to, um, you know, if we try to understand quantum theory without really pursuing um, a dedicated path, then we will get way ahead of ourselves and we'll be reading things that we really have no comprehension of. And it happens to me all the time. <laughs> it happens to me too. And I, you know, you struggle with these things. You go, oh, well, I've got to go back and study something else first so that I can get those concepts down to even be able to understand the language. 
and how right. the language is structuring the concepts. And so what yoga has done is it set up the, the learning curve. It kind of establishes the learning curve. And it says, you know, really before you can get, you know, you know, the, the maximum potential out of your practice at this level, you have to kind of start here and work up. Hmm. So um, we follow those precepts from ancient times because that's what Yogananda has set down. And the thing is, is that it's open for everybody, but who wants to do the work? <laughs> and so we find out. Yes, we and, do. Yeah, we find well, out. Well, and, and it's a process. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, what is it? Yoga Chitta Vritti Naroda <laughs> from Patanjali. It's really yoga is this continual, slow, progressive silencing of the mind. Yeah. Stilling the chitta. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so there's uh, something, you know, there's something at every level. And uh, when I first entered in, I thought, oh, well, self-realization in a few years, I'll, I'll have it. And uh, <laughs> I've seen that it's a journey. But it's a journey of amazing discovery. So mm. I haven't reached my ultimate goal, my ultimate potential yet. But the um, the journey is just way more amazing than I ever imagined. So there's no disappointment there. No, I, I think that, as it said, um, the bigger the fire that you create, the more darkness is revealed. Um, mm. And so uh, I think there's great humility, too, in, in, in understanding how much vastness lays beyond and how much potential there is to walk into. I mean, and that's what makes it exciting and, mm -hmm. and, that's right. and gives us curiosity um, mm -hmm. to be forever on the path and never to see life as a product or some form of terminus. Well, um, the interesting thing here, Jeff, is, is that Yogananda says in a very promising way that this is also the same with the goal. He says, why be happy with happiness that, you know, gets worn out after a while and you get bored? Uh, why not seek a happiness that is ever new and has no end to it? Mm. And then he said, this is the joy of God. He said, the destination that you are headed toward is a joy so great you can't conceive of it now. And it's ever changing. It's ever new. And he calls this Ananda or bliss. So my name, Satyananda, in Sanskrit is um, bliss through truth. And so the endless, ever new bliss that comes from the conscious discoveries of new dimensions of truth. So the goal that we're seeking is not a fixed destination. It is a, um, a continual expansion into what Yogananda calls ever new joy. And he has poems and songs that he's composed about that. And I find this kind of inspiration very, very beautiful. Yeah. You used a word that intuited a question that I had. Um, use the word God, which is a word that is commonly used within self-realization fellowship and and yogananda used it now of course you know, most of us in the west associate that word with an, an abrahamic 
sort of bearded patriarchal grandfatherly fellow with a uh, with a moral abacus as someone that we might fear given his unbridled power to determine our eternal fate but my the sense power is that of you, judgment yeah yes indeed I, I sense that you um leverage that word in a slightly different way what do you mean when you use the word god well that that was a question that had to be answered at the very beginning of my search and um uh, I was seeking everywhere um, and finally landed on this little book of Yogananda called The Science of Religion, which is right in the theme of our conversation today. And as I was reading this little book, um, Yogananda makes a, made a direct connection for me. He said, everyone is seeking happiness. It doesn't matter if it's legal or illegal. You're seeking happiness. That's what your underlying motive is. The greatest happiness is bliss that comes from within. It's a joy that has no identification with outer sources. It just comes from within you. And it's a very powerful flow of joy. And that joy is God. And so when people ask me, how do you define God? I said, that's easy. One word, bliss. Hmm. Because when I made that connection, um, everyone seeking happiness, greatest happiness is inner bliss, and that is God. I said, that's what I want. And I think it was for the first time in my life that I recognized a goal worth striving for. And that was really at the foundation of my choice of a monastic life, because I knew it was going to be difficult any way I chose. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so I said, well, let me make the highest investment I can. It was very pragmatic at that time. <laughs> And looking back, I'm actually very happy with my choice. Um, it hasn't been easy, and it's not easy, but it is rewarding in ways that are personal for me, and it helps me to assist and support others. So God is joy, and the proof of God is the joy that you feel within. And this is the sum and substance of our meditative practice. So people say, I don't know if I'm getting anywhere with my meditation, brother. And I say, well, at the end of your meditation, when you're sitting just quietly, what do you feel? And almost invariably they say, oh, there's just kind of this wonderful feeling. I said, you need to concentrate on that and build on that because that is God's divinity, God's sacredness right within you. And one of the great metaphysical laws is whatever you concentrate on will expand. Mm. So concentrate on that feeling, no matter how small it seems to be, it will begin to expand until it becomes all-consuming. So we have the methodology, and we also have the communion. And the communion is not an absence of life. It is a fullness of joy that is a result of our practice. And do you see that as your primary role, both within uh, Self-Realization Fellowship, but also within the greater context of your life to help people find joy? That's a wonderful way to put it. Um, I would say yes, absolutely. Uh, um, we know the journey that people are on from 
uh, escaping pain to seeking joy. And I'm happily on the further end of that spectrum. People have already realized that living life to escape pain <laughs> is not enough. And so they are searching for a way to seek joy. Um, it's wonderful for me to be able to say there is hope. There is joy that you can point yourself toward. You can forget the past. You don't have to feel guilty or ashamed. You don't have to make up for wrongs that were never in your control anyway. You can begin to simply strive for something that's total wellness within you. And as you begin to develop that within yourself, you will be building gifts that you can share with others. So it is a great joy for me to be able to orient people in this way and to reaffirm their steps in that direction and to feel that I'm assisting Yogananda in some way. I like to say that I help um, seekers become students and students to become disciples and disciples to become better disciples. Yeah. And that's Beautiful. my little world, you know. Yes, yeah. Um, I was speaking with a brilliant author and uh, just a brilliant man. Gabor Mate is his name. Uh, he does a lot of work around trauma. Um, and uh, he was sort of describing the process of what he calls alienation or disassociation when people go through a trauma-inducing event, and there, there's so much of it right now with um, abuse and loneliness and neglect, mm -hmm. that uh, you know, in the absence of being able to, you know, fight or fly, that the other um, tendency is to just press down, to repress and disassociate, mm -hmm. and so we're disassociated with parts of ourselves so then we become alienated from ourself mm -hmm. and in our search for connection to relieve that alienation we look outward for inappropriate substitutes to be at one with god with bliss with ourselves and so Unfortunately, so many of us turn to alcohol or drugs or food or shopping or pornography or Instagram or whatever, you know, you can just yeah. go down the line. Endless substitutes. That's right. And I think what I'm hearing from you is that you're helping people reassociate or remember themselves. Mm. And God, I just can't imagine a more, a more worthwhile thing to do. <laughs> Well, thank you. I, I feel blessed and privileged to be able to be on that side of the discovery spectrum. Because by the time people come, uh, they're seeking happiness and they're hoping that they can find it. They're not always sure. They're not always knowing. But I help to feed that hope. And I get to be sometimes a part of their joy when they do discover it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, just in conclusion, I'd love for you just to talk a tiny bit about where you live and just the extraordinary place that Lake Shrine is, because um, 
I also want to encourage anyone listening who might be planning a visit to Los Angeles to come and discover this absolutely marvelous and, and sacred property. Yes, it's um, a unique sanctuary. Paramahansa Yogananda uh, founded it uh, in 1950. Uh, and he had in mind a beautiful uh, sanctuary where people could get away from the metro experience. And that's the unique thing of Lake Shrine is, is it, it's this sanctuary of natural peace, but there's also a uh, vibration presence there. And yet it's uh, literally surrounded by Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> Yes. And it's only minutes away from downtown Santa Monica. But people come and um, you see the stress on their faces when they arrive. Uh, and then they spend a, an hour just kind of in reflection and what what I call contemplative activity. And by the time they leave, they have this wonderful smile on their face. And so the the purpose here is, is that anyone from any walk of life, whether you believe in God or not, just come to experience the reprieve and the refreshment of stepping outside your daily life and you're outside your role and just, um, we just say, take a walk around the lake. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are benches there that people can sit and they can contemplate as sages have for millenniums. Uh, the calm body of water is well known for its a soothing effect and we find people just sitting there looking and then you know at first the phone's out and then the phone goes away and then they're yeah. smiling and then they're closing their eyes and you can see them going through the steps of <laughs> yeah. uh, relaxing relaxing into the peace that they're feeling the freedom mm. and um, so the site is interesting as a meditation garden as a temple uh, with regular services and meditations now uh, we have a retreat that is in the process of reopening again. And we have an ashram, a monastery where I live and a few of my brother monks that support the work of the site. We are under the umbrella of Self-Realization Fellowship. And uh, it's a wonderful place to come and it's by advanced reservation. So just go to lakeshrine.org and reserve for the next week. It's really easy to get. A reservation and it's free so there's no charge and there's a wonderful host um thank you <laughs> and and I, I guess it's worth mentioning that i believe um mahatma gandhi's ashes or some portion of his ashes are yes. housed there in a sarcophagus Correct. Um, given his relationship with yogananda so there's uh, there's that very interesting mm -hmm. side note to it as well Brother Satyananda, thank you so much um, again for all of your work and for your time today. And, uh, and I hope we can speak again. Wonderful. Well, you've been a wonderful host, Jeff. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Brother Satyananda. To learn more about Self-Realization Fellowship, go to yogananda.org. And if you're in Los Angeles, I highly recommend that you visit Lake Shrine. 
And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you are a regular listener, you know how much work goes into the creation of this project, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where I prattle on for 15 minutes on ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll get access to more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly at any time with comments or questions at jeffk at onecommune.com. I read every email that comes in. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week after week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.